Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Yeah. All right. Are we saving it for the pod? We're saving it for right now. For right now. Uh, folks, they tried to cancel us. They tried to keep us off the air. They tried to prevent us. Uh, it was Harry's uh, pissing child comments that uh, that uh, engaged us in a sustained week-long prolonged absence from the podcast. But we are back once more to fight fight misinformation, uh, fight back against um, – I, I know there are, are conspirators against us. Uh, I, I shall not name them, but we have I, – I have it on good authority – that it starts with park and ends with way um, just like the, the shadowy figures of the Minneapolis repertory cinema podcast scene. Uh, these are real power players. These are people you do not, do not want to be on the wrong side of. And we, we just, you know, stepped on a giant's toes, unfortunately last week with the pissing kid comments. Um, but they cannot keep us away for very long. Like the subject of today's uh, film. Uh, we have been given one chance to, to do one, one last episode, prove our worth, prove ourselves. Um, you'll notice a uh, dear listener that uh, a friend of the pod, Aaron Grossman has once again, uh, Bit, bit his leash. Um, he's no longer uh, tethered to our show. Uh, but, you know, maybe it, it, here's here's the thing. Offering a reward to anybody who finds out information about his whereabouts uh, to not tell us. Don't tell us anything about it. Keep us away and we'll pay you uh, $500. Thank you so much for listening to Trial Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial and Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trial Love Podcast. You can find the Trial on at Trial and Cinema and at trialon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I drive good. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I don't like this game anymore. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And Jason, since we were sort of uh, nearly taken off of the air, can we start calling ourselves Pirate Radio? I've always wanted to refer to myself as somebody on Pirate Radio. I don't inside, know that this actually inside makes it. Yeah, I've been calling my, I've been calling this Pirate Radio forever. Um, we oh, are not excellent. paid to do this. We actually do pay to make this happen. So I think it's like... The opposite of like the yeah. benefit of piracy is, is and they're begging you know, us to stop. Yeah, we, so, we, have, we have no uh, no proponents and no supporters. True radio, so. aka booty love, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find the schedule for um, uh, the, the Trilon showings at trilon.org. I'm not going to reveal the name of the movie today, but I will say that it is the last in a series of movies uh, by the by the late director Sam. Peckinpah, known as Bloody Sam Peckinpah. You can check out other movies of his that we've discussed on the podcast, The Wild Bunch, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, etc. on this podcast uh, in our feed. Check them out and check out thetrialon.org for upcoming series and cool other things due to the trialon. Um, for right now, I would normally toss to our uh, begotten friend, but uh, I will be undertaking the patented Aaron Grossman summary um, under license from uh, Aaron Grossman Enterprises uh, Limited. Uh, so Everything here covered under um, Creative Commons law. It is free and legal for me to do this, but I do not reproduce this in any fashion or format. Um, you will be sued, and uh, the FBI will uh, kill you. Um, directed by Sam Peckinpah, today's film is The Getaway, 1972, with a screenplay by Walter Hill from a novel by Jim Thompson, starring Steve McQueen, Ellen McGraw, Ben Johnson, Elliot Thierry, Sally Struthers, and more. 
Texas career criminal Gordon Doc McCoy is given one last chance at freedom when his wife, I guess, is it never even, is it said explicitly in yep. the, okay. Uh, when his wife, Carol, sets up a deal with a corrupt businessman to help him to have him rob a bank and earn his freedom. Uh, the job goes poorly. Uh, Carol kills the businessman to cover up some iniquities and infidelities. Uh, and the pair spend the rest of the movie on the run from uh, and his loose ends with about five hundred thousand dollars cash from the remaining henchmen of um, the businessman from uh, the law um, from themselves. That sounds like a trial of thing to say. Uh I didn't do any research into the real impact, cultural impact or performance of this movie. I know that it was originally a critical sort of not super well received, uh, but it became one of the most successful films of both Steve McQueen and Sam, Pe Sam Peckinpah's career really enabled, so to speak, gave uh, uh, Peckinpah another sort of blank check after Wild Bunch um, to continue making the kind of weird shit that, they ended, that he ended up making with the rest of his career. Uh, classically embattled i think there were different directors maybe was it bogdanovich that was originally on this i think i'm just going off of what i read on wikipedia the other day but i think there's another director attached to this and another uh, uh producer or writer both of whom got canned when they didn't get along with mcqueen uh it happened that peckinpah and hill did and uh, and now we get the getaway 1972 a movie that's maybe as harry was saying about 45 minutes too long <laughs> um, hey well you know uh also incredibly funny and like maybe the best part about this movie that that Bogdanovich and Thompson were direct are like were attached and then they didn't get along with Steve McQueen but then fucking Sam Peckinpah and Walter Hill did like fucking is this dude's rock the movie or what <laughs> Jesus Christ can you imagine those three guys what it would mean to get along with Walter Hill and Sam Peckinpah you, you like that's a real dark night of the soul shit if you look in yeah. the mirror and realize that your two best friends for the last six months have been Sam Peckinpah and it Walter was like oh Hill. uh Bogdanovich only had two scenes where women were physically assaulted and McQueen <laughs> wanted at least five. Uh, and, and so they had to bring somebody else on who was more amenable my to that. God, including one of probably the most like egregious and uncomfortable, if not the most outright violent and like disturbing one of the most like it's just 35 seconds of Steve McQueen hitting Ally McGraw, just like slapping her upside the face on the side of the road. The content warning for multiple instances of domestic abuse that appear throughout this movie on the part of the protagonist and others. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a movie that's directed by Sam Peckinpah and written by Walter Hill. So, yeah, you know, buyer beware. You it's sort get of what you're yeah. looking for. It's the limestone here. Your mileage will not vary on that. It is all very much that. Um, but yeah, uh, tossing it to the group. Harry, uh, had you seen this movie before? Was this a, a rewatch for you? No, this was the first time I'd seen this movie, um, and it was fascinating. I think that I think this is a pretty classic trial of thing to say as well. But um, I'm really glad this was the last in the Peck and Paw series we watched because I think it's the one that benefits most from having seen so many of his other movies first. In particular, right, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia has a lot of DNA in common with this one. Um, and it really like brings to light some of his career long obsessions. Um, we didn't watch Stray Dogs, right? But like, or Stray Dog, excuse me. But wait, Stray Dog, Straw Dog. What am I saying? Jesus Christ, it's Straw Dog, right? Straw Dogs. Yeah, Straw Dogs, plural. So we have done Stray Dog, the Kurosawa movie. Uh, I think there's a movie called Stray Dogs. Uh, Bongo um, Stray Dogs is an anime. That is also a an anime which I haven't we seen. We can just go off of do um, a, a dog's a dog's purpose, a dog's journey. A dog's um, journey. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that uh, isn't that Kevin Costner? Kevin Costner or uh, is it Costner in those? Yeah, I think no, so. Quaid. He, it's Dennis Quaid. Oh, I knew one of them became like a weird religious nutball, right? Or uh, anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if both of them are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all that is to say, uh, Straw Dogs, the Peck and Paw movie, has a lot in common with this. Um, 
I I think I like this movie. Um, I think it's definitely my least favorite of the Peck and Paws that we've recorded on. Maybe of the Peck and Paws I've seen. Um, like Jason alluded to, I think it's I think it's overly long. Um, I'm really interested in talking about what I cannot help but call the cuck B plot that plays across this entire let's movie. Let's go. Let's go. Um, I have some thoughts about it, but I'm really fascinated by what you guys thought of it because to me, on the face of it, it seems wildly egregious and unnecessary. Um, I have constructed some hackneyed sort of thoughts on why it might not be so unnecessary. Um, but sort of unfortunately or not, and I feel like I say that a lot with Peck and Peckinpah, I think that like the incidentals and the unnecessary stuff in this movie are the parts of it that are most interesting to me. Um, like the fact that it's, it's a movie so much about like an embittered, uh, deconstructive masculinity and a sort of like horrors of what it means to be a man and what it means to subject a woman to being a man uh, in your life. And I think that, like I said, there's a, there's a great deal of um, sort of filmic obsession with that throughout Peckinpah's career. And I think it's really interesting here when it's, when it's almost like um, it's like grafted somewhat awkwardly to a more conventional movie. You know what I mean? It's like, this is like, it's kind of supposed to be, a straightforward thriller that keeps remembering it's being directed by Peckinpah and written by Walter Hill. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up being way more than it, than it uh, appears to be. I keep thinking about like, basically you could call it the climax, arguably the hotel shooter is the climax, but when they're just like in like the fucking trash compactor from star Wars, a new hope and like Steve McQueen and and McBeal are going to get like crushed literally by like the weight of their own actions and the weight of like the, terrible lifestyle that they are leading and uh mcqueen is sort of like desperately like oh help me like stop this from killing us and then (laughs) eventually they just get like dumped out right it's like that is sort of a great metaphor for everything that's happening throughout this movie so yeah i i have a lot of thoughts i guess but i'm really interested in what you guys thought as well because i don't fall uh in one direction or another on this one i guess right like i don't Mm. think it's the movie that um Certainly not that Alfredo Garcia is, not that Wild Bunch is. It's messy. Um, The messiness is kind of the point for me and kind of the interesting part in a way that I feel like a lot of 1970s movies are. But I also have some like pretty serious misgivings about it, I guess. Um, And uh, yeah, so I I really want to know what you guys, where you guys fell as well. Yeah, I won't take long, but it it was more of a disappointment than like a curio to me. But I, I see what you're saying about like, I think the fact that it's more conventionally like a more conventional narrative, a more like boxable thing than a lot of what we've seen from Peck and Pa already. You know, Wild Bunch sort of took its time getting to its point and it features a really big cast. Uh, Alfredo Garcia, the opposite, and it sort of turns into this acid-fueled fever dream toward the end, not literally, but very much just like totally strung out type filmmaking. Um, this one felt a little more like directly middle of the road and every time that it did pop into that, oh, we're still a Peck and Pop movie, so we're going to have these moments of like this sort of tortured masculine violence and hatred of the self thing is like those are i think really good and impactful i think that they sort of get smothered under uh you know sort of chase scene and narrow escape after chase scene and narrow escape just functionally as a movie i find myself especially in the 70s when those aren't like stand out when we're not the french connection tend to just flatten a movie to me 
I do really like the way that violence is deployed in this movie, especially that hotel shootout you're talking about. Those scenes do stick in my mind, again, purely because of just like the very baseline mechanically, like the squibs just look really fucking good. in that. Take a shot every time Peckinpah cuts directly from some guy's chest being opened by a shotgun to a bunch of kids. It's like, holy (laughs) shit. Like it was so, so wild. Like watching this after Wild Bunch was so like alarming because yeah. he finds a way to insert kids into like almost all of the most brutal scenes it's this. great it's great uh the scene where she's waiting where uh ellie mcgraw carol is waiting at the train station for it to arrive and she's going to take off with the money uh and they're just like screaming kids everywhere and you just get like and and kids are essential to the plot in that there's that one kid with a squirt gun um a la charade that's what i was thinking of when carrie grant gets squirted in the face by that kid i love that scene um but like it's funny that you should mention like uh, 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 Peck and Pa's career long obsessions because there are multiple points in, in, in this movie in which I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm a little bit back, back on board with like where, where this movie comes from sort of like, yeah, it's built from a novel. So it's maybe not entirely like an original Sam Peck and Pa story, so to speak. It's not like an Alfredo Garcia where he was just able to turn idea into like with the help of a screenwriter into a film but then uh you know there are um uh, like early on even like that one of the first things that really struck me about i mean the opening shot is of deer in an open field and then of sheep in an open field and then of guards in the prison watchtower pointing oh, rifles man. at them like in insanely peck and pa opening to this movie. also like that's feel- one of the big things about this movie right is that i think that the first half an hour is like a fucking five I, and a half or oh six star god. movie oh my <laughs> and, like, god it's it, so it made good. the rest of the movie so disappointing to me <laughs> maybe maybe that's what i need convincing on is like why this movie was anything more than because the setup of well I'll, I'll back up like again the intro 30 minutes or so like harry's saying i really did i really adored like uh directorial ed- editing um uh, cinematography just what is being said and what's being shown the process that mechanical process of, i think it's like a loom that he's using in the prison yeah um, well it's like it's like a thief prequel we're right. like we un- we understand why the character from thief is so desperate to never go to prison again right it's like that's what this is depicting it is very and it good. does it like entirely filmically entirely formally and it's like so fucking effective well i just maybe we just focus on that so much of what we like about that for a minute because i i, I love mechanically and i keep saying mechanically because i don't know any other good movie word uh vocabularies but the the way that it starts this movie with that constant like creaking sound of the machine you see like you're not really supposed to be given a, an idea of what it does but it's sort of like you realize that Stephen queen is, doc is like sort of destined to be there when he's not outside laboring and burning trash and you know stuff basically just like the, the painful labor of being a prisoner and sort of like the inhumane treatment of even the most rote like uh, uh, plain labor that, that that they're forced to to um to conduct uh and it's like set alongside uh short flashbacks of his time with his wife with carol um you know they're embracing each other in bed together they're swimming they're having a wonderful time uh and it just like is it's i know that we reference spongebob a little bit too much on this podcast but there's it's the scene of the guy who goes from cubicle to car to home to bed to cubicle to car to home to bed and it's just like it's that but in 1972 with steve mcqueen in prison and with his wife and it's just like i don't know it's it's very tight it's very like um uh, you you sort of know what it's doing so you can box that moment in your head and then just sort of watch how it plays out. I loved just how satisfying it is to watch that. And then, of course, that whole sequence ends after he uh, meets with his wife again through glass and says, go ahead and tell, um, you know, this businessman, I forget, Benyon, I think is the name's character or is the character's name. Tell him I'm ready to talk. She gets him off on a deal. 
And right as the doors open, he's in his wonderful suit. He's like first day out of jail. Um, the doors open, clank, and all of that noise stops. And he just calmly, quietly heads out to the courtyard and waits for her car to arrive. Like that opening scene alone, 30 minutes, yes, great. The whole planning and the execution of the heist and all, wonderful. But in that specific setup scene, I think it just prepared me for something that I was not really, that I figured I could not get if we were already into the heist planning stages in a two-hour movie, 35 minutes in. I will say, note from Cody in the chat, it is spelled B-E-Y-N-O-N, and that confused me as well. In the captions, I watched this movie at home. The captions, I believe, was Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Everybody was saying Benyon, but Banyan is how it's spelled. And I, I can remember that because anytime they said his name, I thought of Banya from Seinfeld. And like that for as <laughs> despicable of a dude, that, or annoying little shit that guy is, it got me to like Benyon a lot more. Uh, and that's why this is a five-star movie. But no, uh, I don't know about that. But yeah, Benyon. Benyon Canonical. Thank you. Yeah, well, canonical. He's the guy who sends uh, McQueen on a mission, on the last mission that goes badly, that sets up like the actual three quarters of the movie. Um, there's so much more to talk about than that, but I think that b- each piece is like, maybe that's where the, your mileage will, may vary on that, on this movie is like how each of those pieces fits together. The cuck romance subplot, the um, constant like sort of tension between Carol and Doc, uh, the ongoing like chase scenes and incredible violence and stuff. It all like never, none of it sings from that point on. And I wonder if that's sort of the intentional, like n- the intention of that chaos, that chaotic element. I wonder if that's why it exists is to like, make it feel distinct and like, oh, this isn't the movie you were thinking it was going to be. But I kind of, in some ways, wish it were just the movie I was thinking, I think, I thought it was going to be. But um, I see Harry's hand had his hand up for a little while. Did you want to talk more about the intro? or before I do, yeah. Because I was trying to, I spent a lot of time thinking about why that intro worked so well for me because I think that like, well, I mean, for one thing, I, I think that it sort of pioneers a lot of um, like filming that that has become almost standard since like it's probably the most effective use of pick peck and pause cross cuts that we've ever seen where he just cuts forward and backward in time wildly or he cuts into a dream sequence or you know at the the best part of the movie in my opinion it like it'll cut it'll do the thing like you had said with um spongebob in his cubicle but very importantly um it it does not respect chronology so it'll be like he's in the yard uh, he's in the like the rec center. He is on yeah. uh, like he he is at the machine. Then he is back in bed. Then he is thinking about his wife. And throughout all of those sequences, the loom machinery sound effect plays over all of them, right? And like we see, we keep cutting between this mechanistic action of him pulling the levers and him working on the loom and him working at in the yard with him doing other things right him looking at the picture of his wife him trying to play a game in the rec room and that gets louder and louder and like it's it's pretty obvious filmmaking right but like it it so effectively sets the character stage for the big compromise that he makes at the end of this sequence right where and and you can understand from my point of view and i i think entirely visually without any dialogue to suggest this we understand that that what Doc is afraid of here is that existentially he's losing something, right? He is like those memories of his wife that he was using to sort of like protect himself are being corrupted by the noise, by the machinery. He is like losing this sense of who he was and this sense of what he loved and what he stood for um, by his time in jail, right? Like after he gets out, he said like, it does something to you, right? He, mm-hmm. he can't get, Good he can't like, have sex with his girlfriend right away because he's too nervous. He's too afraid. And it's because he's something was done to him in prison. Right. And we saw that happen. We saw that like this madness that, uh, 
comprised of cross-cutting, it was like, this is not going to leave you anything. Like, the prison is going to get inside of your head it's and take, take everything yeah, exactly. away from you. Exactly. Um, and I, I think that, like, in it's sort of Peckinpah greatest hits, right? And I think in in some ways, for better and worse, this whole movie is. Like, I, I think that, honestly, the line that um, Carol has where she says, like, it doesn't matter if we get away, there's not going to be anything left, is, like, maybe the tagline for every single fucking Peckinpah movie I've ever seen. I mean, like, you think about... Uh, Stray Dogs or Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia or The Wild Bunch, any of that. And I guess I'm not disappointed necessarily because I think it's actually really important that, like I said, this movie ultimately becomes this sort of um, Alfredo Garcia-esque descent where it's like they are forced to make more and more compromises and they come to hate each other more and more to the point where you're like, did he ever escape from prison? Or like, is he actually going to be able to seize what what's his in the end, right? Like, I think that they, they do the cut to dream sequence one more time after he leaves the prison, right? But this time, it, they're at like a reservoir in Texas and he's watching kids uh, swim and he starts to have this daydream about he and Carol swimming and having fun like kids in the reservoir. And then immediately after the sequence, we're cutting between he him sort of like smiling to himself, imagining it, and he and Carol doing it, they do it. Right. And it's sort of like that's the difference between inside and prison is that like in prison, what you do is you have those dreams and then you go and you do your labor and the labor takes the dreams away. When you're free, you can have those dreams and then you go and do those dreams. Those dreams become reality. That's like what freedom is. Right. But that is the last time he is able to do that, right? Because yeah. from th- from then on, he is, again, he is at somebody's beck and call. He is doing this job. He is performing this labor for somebody else. And the labor is stealing his dream from him. It's stealing his relationship from him, right? Like, I think that he and Carol are are very nearly split up because of the terrible things that they have to do to and for each other in order to get what they're trying to get to, right? It's, it's very much like... Uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, yeah, right? Yeah. We're like, um, that character ended up hating the the woman he was supposed to love because of what she quote unquote in his head was making him do for her. That's very much what's happening to McQueen here too. Right. And like, that's why he can't, he can't stand it that like she had to quote unquote lower himself for him. Um, which I, I do want to get into more because that's a really fascinating psychological character study as well. This idea that she had to sleep with this guy and, and like he blames her for that, even though he explicitly asked her to do that in prison and um, how fucked that whole arrangement is and how I think that might relate to the whole cucking that happens uh, halfway through this movie or whatever. But um, yeah, I'm really interested. How does that all sit with you, Cody? And I guess like how does the beginning connect to your larger takes or I guess, what, do you, what are you thinking about right now from what we've said? Um, and how does it relate to what you took away from this movie? Ooh, nice. Four questions at once. I feel like I'm in English class. Uh, that's, yeah, no, I, one thing I really, I really liked about, um, I did like this movie quite a bit. I think coming into this slate, I would have said that Alfredo Garcia was probably tops for me. And I'd seen Wild Bunch once before. Uh, we all kind of talked about it. But I, I think roughly they're all kind of on the same sort of tier of I... I'm really appreciative of the layers that are present, even if they don't all execute, and even if they're kind of latching onto sensibilities that are usually pretty different from mine when it comes to like you know movie watching and stuff. Um, but like I, I think some other things really easy to latch onto in this. Like every there are a number I think of pretty clearly delineated 
kind of chapters is the boring way to think about it. But there are like chunks of this movie that do feel like their own genre, their own style. The the first stretch that that we've all talked about and have agreed, I think, is like pretty taut, pretty perfect. That um, prison human drama sort of element where he's, he's flashing. You know, we're not necessarily playing with uh, with um, precise linearity. He's that that kind of mechanical grinding in the background, um, churning away at his at his sanity, and then you know we eventually get the kind of more classically minted high sequence. We've got um, you know the Vim Vender sort of road movie. I feel like I've invoked Vim Vender's road movies uh, on uh, in a number of conversations lately. Um, there's like a Hitchcockian train pursuit. Uh, there's Ooh, that's um, very that, Hitchcock. That's a great point. Yeah. And then there, I mean, there's that, obviously that, that hotel shootout at the end and like each of those segments are, I, I think punctuated. I mean, in most cases by like a really great set piece, like the, the explosions following the heist, the, um, the dump truck sequence, which is like really impressive. The more I think about it, like that, that one really stuck with me. Uh, and then of course the hotel shootout and it could be, and I, I think, I don't know, the, uh, the changing in, and styles and locations. And I mean, Terry, you articulated it pretty well. Like it's um, the, the, I don't know, these sorts of, it's clear that doc wants, like he wants change. He, like he's feeling like that restlessness is obvious early, but then it also becomes obvious to the viewer that he is not like necessarily equipped to grapple like with those changes fully. Like he knows he does not want to hear the churning anymore, but like then he needs to, he needs to, think about something else. He needs to be occupied by something else. And then that gets into, I mean, it's just like, well, how the fuck were you going to get out of prison if your wife didn't sleep with like the authority figure? Yeah. Like you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, so, like very, like when that, well, and, it, and also like he knew, yeah. he said his price, right. like he fucking right. knew what he was asking her to do, which is why right. it's so fucked up that later on, he's so mad at her about it because it, it's just like, like he is so incapable of actually reckoning with the world that he lives in. Right. Like he, <clears throat> he like wants to, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Like you said, right. Like he wants to be like this noble bank robber who like, doesn't right. have to like think about the dirty shit that he has to do. And this movie is kind of all about uh making him wade through all that shit and and deal with it yeah yeah this movie is very much i think like you said earlier like it's all about the mess we're all here for the mess um we're 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 into peck and Paw movies more or less for the mess the and i think where this plays into i guess the the favorable qualities of this being the last film in the slate that uh, i think period but obviously also the one that that we're talking about um and it might be I'm, I'm also invoking something that we talked about uh recently on a, a previous or a different podcast where it's completely separate but just like thinking about finality and the not necessarily the work's ability to like tie up loose threads but at least like offer a certain glimmer of hope um in the ways that we're able to amongst all this mess and so like getting to the end and that those troubling dynamics between these two lead characters like having those set up early of course, classic peck and pop. Then it's also the you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat waiting to be like, well, how's the how's the film gonna square this? Will it square it at all? Are we just gonna like sit in this dude's filth um and sort of filthy view of of his his partner? Um and that's like that's gonna be the takeaway of it, or will there be some sort of upward trajectory? And um you see the seeds of that and you see like I I think the the fact that we're able to be sent off from this movie and from the the bloody Sam Peckinpah series with this sort of like, you know what, we we're com coming out of this with way less money, but we have a vehicle and we have each other and we have 
um, a, a really great celebrity casting in in Slim Pickens, and so everything everything's maybe going to be okay. There's there's more hope than when we started that things are going to be uh, okay. And then I don't know, I just because the the cuckening was was brought up earlier. That is. I don't really know what to, and, and then I promise I'll hand it off. You just, you guys have said a whole lot of really good things. Um, the cuckening is a fascinating reason to keep Rudy around, and he is sort of like a, a magnetic, vibrant personality. Um, and it is almost a punchline that he, like a, a certifiable punchline that he is dispensed of uh, immediately. But that is, I think, one of the things we were talking about before hopping on, where it's like, that sort of thing is there, and it also that whole subplot can be cut from the movie, and I don't know if anybody would really be worse off for it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where to go from here. But that's, I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a lot of stuff kicking around, and um, Peck and Paw seems to be really good at uh, setting up things to kick around sports. Yeah, four. Uh, I don't know if this is where you were going to go, Harry, but I was going to go into the cuckening because it's like it's the, the 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 plot that's running alongside the plot that really ultimately literally means nothing to the narrative itself. And I, I think maybe it, it, like is except that, as like a frame or foil story, yeah, I think let's, if you let's, want to be generous, <laughs> let's set up is that um so Alitieri plays uh, Rudy, who is one of the men assigned to Doc's crew to perform the heist that's supposed to earn Doc his his freedom. Things go wrong. Rudy survives uh, and tries to kill doc to get all the money fails doc does not kill him thinks he does does not kill him rudy needs to go rehabilitate finds a couple including a doctor in some small town uh takes them both with him makes moves towards the doctor's wife uh and then over the course of the movie we just check in with them once in a while this this trio over and over again. over and over again and rudy, each rudy time a little bit more ridiculous right rudy, like rudy, rudy is, sleeping is, with the wife Rudy is like hanging out with the wife in the back of the car. Rudy is eating ribs with the wife and they're tossing the bones and at throwing at, them at each other at yeah. there and at her husband, um, which is again, I cannot stress enough. We come to, back to this without, it seems like downbeat or rhyme or reason. It's not like, I mean, there are one or two times that yeah. Rudy discovers something about the his quarry. He's now pursuing Doc on his way to El Paso. But, I mean, we should and, call it what it is, right? Peck and Paw spliced about half an hour of cuck porn into this movie. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. That ends pretty. I mean, pretty dire. Like uh, Sally Struthers, who plays Fran, the wife, the woman that Rudy is seducing uh, under his, under her husband's nose, um, is she is sort of eventually seems to be enjoying it. She's now like into it with Rudy. He has definitely seduced her. He has definitely like made moves toward her that she did not want. Eventually she's, I don't know, Stockholm syndrome or just into it at a certain point. Harold then, and again, content warning at the top commits suicide in the bathroom and his death is just sort of brushed off. She says, poor Harold. Uh, they both like, she they mockingly named the kitten after him because yeah. he died. The, the kitten was stolen at the same time as when Rudy kidnapped this. Uh, uh, and it, that kitten is, is repeatedly referred to as a pussy. So it's really subtle stuff that they're working with. Here. Oh my God. It's so open and brazen, but yes, it is. It, of course that story ends with Sally Struthers, Fran in the hotel. She is, uh, I don't think she's killed. Is she? She just runs away eventually. Oh, out of somebody fright. just calls her a dumb broad and just sort of like kicks her out of the way. And so she's she just sort she of runs left away. There. She's, she's no longer part of the plot. Rudy attempts to shoot D Gordon Doc one last time. Isn't killed on a like a fire escape, and that's the end of that story. Like it had no material. The bearing. whole reason why, like, they completely so could have much. cut it out of the movie. It was absolutely nothing to do with anything else. And I gotta say, I'm fifty fifty on like. I enjoy that it was there and I find it completely abhorrent. I mean, it is, it is abhorrent, like it is obscene. It is meaningless ultimately in a way that I find it really hard to um, 
like legitimately criticize Sam Peckinpah movies because there is something like it did make me feel a way about a character. It did have some purpose narrative, like if not like to move the story forward or in direct relation to the plot, but narratively there is something like I think of Rudy now as that guy. We got so much time with him, so much to build. It's time to build this character. And as Cody was saying, sort of like a scene stealer whenever he's in there. So I don't regret that I spent this time with the character or with the characters. It is a really, really like mean way to spend that time and so long to spend on it. Um, but the, when we refer to the cuckening, that's it. It's just like an extended like two hours of elitary, uh seducing Sally Struthers and and convincing his, her husband to kill himself in a hotel bathroom and then moving on in the most sordid way possible. Unfortunately, is it the year of the cuck? Ooh, uh, I don't, I don't want it to be, through, but let's keep Keep an eye out for um, the uh, there's a new series just announced at the trial on for August. Uh, Jackie Chan, uh, d- I think it's tr- Twin Dragons and uh, and Double Impact uh, Twin um, Van Dams. Both. Yeah, there will be some candidates. I'm pretty certain those <laughs> movies contain some candidates for the cuckening. But uh, Harry, did, what did you think of that? I have a lot of thoughts about the hashtag cuckening, of course. Um, I. I also found it abhorrent, very difficult to watch. Um, I understand that that was kind of the point. Um, I don't know that I'm willing to give him the benefit um, of like calling it necessary. I I think that there are a lot of ways you could have communicated the point in in less ostentatious, over the top ways. True. Um, I made a joke about it on Letterboxd. Shout out to Letterboxd, but like it really does feel like it's like the worst Tarantino can sort of like. Tarantino is so openly winking at you from the other side of the screen that you remember that you're not watching a movie anymore, or rather that you are watching a movie and that you're watching a movie directed by a man child uh, who wants you to know about that. Uh, that's kind of how this felt to me, right? Where it was just like Peck and Paul was like really, really rubbing my nose in it. Um, but also, like, I have to admit, like, I think that this entire movie is about rubbing your nose in it to a little bit. Mm. It's like, oh, oh, you wanted, like, we're sort of the cucks, right? It's like, oh, you wanted a heist movie? You wanted a fun little heist movie about a cool Steve McQueen badass. You wanted Bullet to rob banks. Here you go, motherfucker. Like, here you go. He's beating his wife. How about that? How about you watch this cuck shit happen? How about, like, they roll around in literal garbage? Because, like, that's who they are. That's what it means to be like this. Um, and I, I think that, like, that that is honestly kind of the idea, right? Is that, like, Peckinpah really wants to make you confront the ugliness of what's happening here. Specifically, I think that like Rudy sort of operates as a foil to Steve McQueen and Carol's relationship, right? To Doc and Carol's relationship where it's like, like this woman is clearly younger than he is. He is clearly like, he does not see her as an equal and equitable partner, even though she does everything that he does. They are partners in crime literally together, but he does not see her that way. He sees her as this sort of like, person to put on a pedestal as this sort of like symbol of his own purity and his own goodness which is why he's so mad when she quote unquote debases herself um to have sex with what's his name to get uh to benyon to get her get him out of prison um this movie is sort of about him overcoming that um perception of her as somebody who is sort of like on a pedestal and like both simultaneously higher and lower than him in that she doesn't live in the real world, but that allows him to sort of escape from the real world. Right. Like I think that generously you could um, read the ending that Cody alluded to as him finally kind of getting over that and kind of being like, Oh, like this woman is my partner. She is my wife, right? She lives in the same world that I live in. And she is like somebody I'm actually going to have to like, confide in and uh team up with rather than somebody i can sort of 
um, abstract and and put on this pedestal away from me. Uh, we're in this together, sort of thing. I think that like I think that um, Rudy might show in in the ugliest way possible, sort of like how McQueen had been thinking about his wife, right, as this sort of like object of his to throw around and to use and abuse and to sort of like see as as an accessory to who he is um that being said like the the cuck stuff is so wild i think that there might be a darker thing there about like how it it was interesting to me how how everybody wanted to be a criminal so bad in this movie like even slim pickens at the end of the movie right like is immediate like oh hell yeah we're running from the law man like like hell yeah, I'm going to do this. We're going to go off jumps. And like, I've been in trouble with the law myself. And like, there is this idea that like the everyday world and it's, it's horrible machinery as depicted by the first act is so inescapable that any chance people are going to take. And maybe like, like Harold represented this sort of like prison for this woman. Right. I think that that is the sort of alternate reading. And that is why she hmm. is so willing to escape from it. And that reading is pretty gross, right? Because it, it's pretty misogynistic and it's pretty like, you could have just divorced Harold, you know, you didn't have to do this to him uh, or like, but I, I think that that's where the, the cruelty comes from, right? Is there is this idea that like, I think um, at his best, Peckinpah sort of has this really great um, motif that rides over all of his movies about this idea that like, oh, the structures that we live inside, that we are imprisoned inside, you know, Wild Bunch definitely shows this. Alfredo Garcia definitely shows this. They are doing something to us, right? They are making us into these cruel, bad people. I think that like that's a big part of why he uses kids the way he does, right? It's like he's got this kid with a really realistic squirt gun shooting at Steve McQueen, and then Steve McQueen says, "Go back to your mom, or I'm going to break your arm," right? And the kid's like clearly traumatized or whatever, and it's like, okay, where we are right now as people living under capitalism, living in this sort of prison state. It's making us into people who are looking for reasons to be abjectly cruel. And I think that's a part of what that is trying to depict, right? Is that like this woman is waiting to be as cruel as possible to this man that she has come to regard as sort of her prison warden. And therefore, like when Rudy gives her the opportunity to do that, she is using him the way that he is using her to sort of like make this point to her husband. Right. And like, I think that the the implication there is that, like, by extension, unless he can get over it, that's kind of what Steve McQueen is doing to um, Carol, his wife in this movie as well, is sort of like using her to make a point about who he is and in the process sort of ruining her. And that's sort of the dramatic stakes of the movie. But like I said, I think that, like, there is sort of a bridge too far. Right. Where it's just like it's so mean <clears throat> and it's so indulgent. painful yeah. and indulgent. That that like I'm constructing these elaborate justificatory reasons for it when the movie itself is sort of resisting those readings. It's sort of actually just saying like, hey, look how much fun I'm having shooting this cuck porn. And it's like I would be sort of remiss to make a bunch of excuses for that when like Peckinpah himself clearly wants that to live like on the face. Right. And I think that the abject cruelty is kind of the point, um, to be honest. And like. Maybe not all in a bad way, but certainly in a way that makes it difficult to watch. Um, what do you think, Cody? I think that, I don't know, sort of a long shot, but like, I don't, did Peckinpah think that was funny? Like, was this supposed to be a comedic, like, yeah. well, like must have, right? Yeah, yeah, well, way, especially sure. like, he fucking made Straw Dogs, right? Which is like one of the most sort of controversial depictions of a possible, like, cuck situation that like has lived in infamy. And so like, you have to like you have to think that like 
this is just something that he thinks about a lot. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, different. Obviously, if that if that subplot had been handled differently, like if the the doctor was a real shit heel, maybe it would be like I don't know more uh, more obvious uh, of a comedic um, detour in the movie. Uh, but there's. I don't know. Not a, there's also a lot of what ifs about like what if these things were executed differently. And I hadn't considered before this conversation that being like a distinct uh, like foil thread to um, kind of the main thread of the movie. But I, I think that makes a ton of sense. The uh, I mean, whether it's I don't know whether it's warranted and welcome, like whether it earns its runtime or not. Scare quotes earns its runtime. That's another phrase I probably throw it too often. But like the fact that. <laughs> and to, to pull out the uh, what is dangerously close to like Marvel um, discourse, but just like Rudy wrote, uh, attempts to seduce Fran, uh, Mrs. Clinton, or whatever, and like Doc ain't seducing nobody. Like, where's the where's the seduction? I mean, like, I don't know. It's I, obviously there is like there's love there at the start of the movie, but there's no like acts of sed- and obviously this, the seduction comes from like a very rotten and, and single-minded place mm-hmm. but uh, i think that is and i don't know everything i'm saying and disclaimer that's mm-hmm. already been said by by you fine folks but like this is probably a more generous reading than that subplot deserves but like the beats are there technically speaking like there's um technically speaking that sounds also so dirty rudy's so <laughs> dirty but i mean yeah, like Rudy is doing that and i think we are maybe ge- again generously supposed to read those sort of micro beat pivots of you know like well at least you know rudy is at least rudy's magnetic at least you know when rudy's here i'm not like looking at at dark mccoy's you know mm-hmm. steve mcqueen's leathery face as he's like gra- uh, unable to grapple with his his new environment or the old environment that is you know now a new environment that hmm. that you know now, now that he's uh that he's out of prison we come to realize how baseless that rudy fran relationship is and um i think come to appreciate at least a little bit that like doc and carol's relationship was spun up from from something we don't say a lot of that Hmm. a lot of that at the beginning doc starts to figure things out and i'm again i'm okay with the fact that he doesn't come full circle by by the end of the movie that you know there is a, a distinct platform for him to you know, for the two of them to to drive away, and you know, that's hopefully a positive direction that they're that they're going in towards the the border. I think they they were going to Mexico or whatever, but um, yeah, I mean, the fact that that Carol was, and this is something else that I think probably could have been sold a little bit better in order to make some of these um, undercurrents sing a little bit more. But the fact that um, you know was brought up, Carol is involved with the heist. She's shown she's very capable. And the the two Rudy and um, the other guy who were originally involved with um, you know with, with that pro- like they Doc doesn't like anything that they're doing like that's that's very obvious. Whereas Carol shows she's very capable, and then like all of a sudden in the second act or so, like she can't do anything right. Um, and it, like there's this sort of I don't know inequitable transfer of of I don't know blame or just like shit tossing, which. I don't know if Doc was, uh, dis, you know, not trusting of anybody for for anything. Period. Then maybe there that there would be something. But there's like a really sweet shot that I don't know if I'll I'll offer that up as uh, an option in a segment later in the show. But there is like a really nice, you know, as the 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 heist is happening, Doc and Carol like just like it's this slight 
momentary glance that they look at each other where they share like a, a slight smile before like they I don't realize how kind of fucked they are. It's like that's that's awesome. He doesn't he doesn't have that with Rudy or uh the guy who shot the security guard because they suck, but then she gets reamed so much more later on for I don't know things so I don't know. I don't know how well that that vibes with um with Doc's arc as well. That seemed pretty singular to me, but but I don't know. All that is to say <laughs> in conclusion, counselor, is the cuckening valid? I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of tough, but I don't know. Like, if, if you if you feel like busting out a like a like a microscope and looking at it, like there's there's probably something there. But it's yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a little. It's uh, we're we're being generous, but it's it's a it's a long weekend, so maybe we can afford to be a little bit more generous than usual. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that like as as strange as it sounds, I think that this is in its own way as much a relationship movie as Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, right? Like, I would even argue that the major narrative stakes of this movie are not necessarily Will McQueen and uh, McBeal get away, or at least those are like equally major to this idea that like is this relationship no, totally. going to exist? Is it predicated on anything real, or is it only predicated on this sort of illusion? that McQueen had while he was in prison about who she was and who they were that now is going to break down in the face of the real world and the awful things that they have to do. Um, I think that there's, there's a reading of that where like the, the cuckening making such an, a clear mockery of marriage as an institution, right. And of like this sort of like traditional love between two, a man and a wife, um, it's like important to see, maybe important to see that, to understand the stakes here where it's like, this movie is, is ultimately all about, like, were these people ever in love? Like, are they in love? Does this love exist, right? Do, do Carol and Cardinal McCoy actually, like, love anything about each other? Um, does he see her as a partner, as an equal, or does he see her as an accessory? I think that, like, by by putting this cuck frame story in the middle of this movie, those stakes are sort of heightened, right? And it, it makes it so that, like, the moments when he is so cruel to her and he beats her, right, when he disparages her... It's it we're really supposed to feel that, right? It's supposed to be like, oh, this this guy sucks. Oh brother, this guy stinks, right? And it's it's like that that is the point, right? It's like when you think about a woman the way that Steve McQueen's character thinks about his wife in this movie, this is the end point of that, right? She becomes less and this relationship isn't real. And the stakes sort of therefore become like is our boy Doc McCoy going to be able to get over this? This sort of like interior, like internalized misogyny and chauvinism and these traditional ideas that he has, um, or are they ultimately going to dissolve what might have been real or maybe never even was, right? And I think that like ultimately, I read this movie as as maybe a little bit more um, generous toward him and optimistic than than is earned necessarily. But I think that those are clearly the stakes that run throughout the movie, right? Is there's this idea that like he and um, Carol are, are going to have to change who they are to each other. And he is going to have to accept that Carol lives in the real world, right? Alongside him and is not this sort of like naive, pure princess that he, that he wants her to be or needs her to be, uh, for himself. Right. Um, and I think that like, I think that there's a really interesting sense in which like, it's very clear that, that she was never that and never wanted to be that. And it was just that he wanted her to be that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I would have liked it maybe more if I think uh, Carol is kind of um, underwritten as a character. Um, I feel kind of bad bringing this up, but like I don't think Ali McGraw is a great actress in this movie. Um, I, I think that she she has a hard part to sell, and, and they don't give her a lot to work with. But 
I don't, and maybe it's just the fact that she's starring opposite Steve McQueen, um, who is like unfortunately extremely good at specifically this character because that's the character that he is. Yeah. Um, there but, are there are times I think she shines, but yeah. uh, yeah, I, I I think that she does a better job than like contemporary reviews gave her credit for because I think that like she does this thing where she sells the like, um the high pitched sort of emotions of the scene really well, where like she can come across as somebody who is very committed and also very scared simultaneously and sort of like both badass and vulnerable. Um, and I think that's pretty important to the character. Um, but yeah, uh, last thing, I guess, uh, Rudy should have been played by John Cassavetes. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, I kept thinking about him anyway. I think that like, if you want to do a character that is so cruel and so evil, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta bring the man himself. Uh, but Rudy did a great job anyway. Uh, those sideburns are going to haunt my nightmares. I will say um, they realized that a Greek couldn't be as uh, terrible and uncomfortable as an Italian in this case. So they had to, mm. they had to properly cast Ella Thierry. Um I think we probably spent a little bit enough time on the cuckening itself. I think I think I, just to like because both of you gave me so much to think about in this respect, I think Harry's point about it sort of like making like making mockery of the audience's expectations of a movie like this i think the cuckening play and i'm just going to keep using that term the cuckening plays into that read pretty easily and like comfortably uh in that like now i think in retrospect like in the moment they feel like disconnected they feel um like it's a grotesque sideshow that just kind of ends in a sort of like throwaway slapdash manner but i think i think in actuality it's kind of like the actual the, the the Rudy um Fran thing is kind of a reifier of the quote unquote realness of uh Doc and Carol's relationship. Ultimately, like, I think that's what it wants to be. Yeah, right. for sure. And, and I don't I don't know if it like squares the circle on that, so to speak. But I think again, I was going to use the term square to square the circle on in the next sentence. I think the fact that Doc and Carol can't quite square the circle on their relationship. On you know, he gets out of prison and it's not a perfect reunification. He's changed as a person because he's undergone you know uh, years of, of imprisonment um he's a different person he has changed he's he can't like really consummate the relationship he can't really relate to her uh she you know is is, is distraught and full of shame over the things that she had to do to get like i mean we'll say sociopolitically it's a mess but in the like in the confines of that relationship they can't make things work because of the material conditions that have been put on the relationship uh rudy and fran I think are like sort of uh, thumbing your nose. Like if you're expecting the lead and his uh, and his, you know, his old gal to really get back together and, you know, and it's a wonderful life with them together and they're, you know, Robin Banks and, and it's a wonderful time where the movie ends is closer to that. But throughout most of this movie, it is strife. It is conflict. The fact that at, that Rudy and Fran can make that can like, I'm not saying that it's a healthy or positive version of that, but the fact that Rudy is like sociopathically seductive, that Fran is, uh, you know, not that she's not given the agency that she needs to make decisions. Probably that like she are, are actually good for. It. Like by the end of the of of her tenure in the movie, she is not in like a, a decent mental state. She is broken and and like laying in a hallway while bullets fly around her. Um, she's not well. I think that's like, I think the fact that the layers get pulled back at the end there, but are mostly like, look at this guy successfully seducing a woman. That is like what you would pre usually expect of a movie made from the 30s through the 60s about somebody who's successful at what he does, if he's a good guy or a bad guy, right? I think I'm tr just trying to break it down to the, the tropes that I know best 
and I see the tropes that I know best reflected in Rudy and Fran. And it's like this weird sideshow that we've got going is the encapsulation of what you would traditionally expect from protagonist and his girl. And but as a sideshow to the main uh, event, the main like plot of of Doc and Carol, they aren't like they're having problems. They are having real issues that are like created by the material conditions that the relationship has been put under for the years that he was in prison and maybe even before that uh, and everything that's followed. I think just like in isolation, these two stories are like a little bit of a foil, like you were saying, and that one is like thumbing its nose at saying like, this is what you wanted audience, right? You wanted a guy, a manly guy, um, you know, sort of like uh, having his way with a woman and her really enjoying it sort of thing. If we're really, really, really reading into what maybe the most generous version of what we could say Walter Hill and Sam Peckinpah are doing, I think that is where my brain lands is, is that this is not like a distraction from the main story, but it's like a comment on what's not happening in the main relationship there. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, totally. I think that like this, I think that Steve McQueen's casting itself might be an interesting thing to read into that as well. Right. I keep thinking of like the great escape or something, or I think about like how, um, Steve McQueen's character in this movie is like a really good example of sort of like quote unquote conservatism as a response to trauma. Um, it's like sort of one of those really, um, you could argue generous, but I think that there's some grain of truth to like this reading of like World War II veterans that like came back home and they just wanted a quote unquote like quiet life, right? Like I remember my dad really deified uh, World War II veterans for that, right? And I, I guess not really without reason, but but it was like they just wanted to come back home and stop thinking about all the wild and terrible shit they saw and have a wife and 2.3 kids or whatever and a white picket fence and a dog. And a lot of conservatism rose out of the fact that the world was never actually like that, that nobody is actually entitled to that, that that is actually predicated on fundamental inequalities. And unfortunately, like fortunately for everyone, but maybe unfortunately for these guys, like coming back home was also going to mean reckoning with that. Right. That is char- that is Steve McQueen's character arc in this. Right. Like he is in prison. He is being shaken to his core by trauma. Uh, from what he's seen and what he's had to do to survive inside, he stays alive by looking at these pictures of his wife and thinking about how when he gets back out, everything's going to be back to normal, right? He has this inflated notion of purity, of this traditional relationship. The movie is about mocking that idea, right? In sort of the cruelest way possible. Like this idea that like, oh yeah, when you get out, everything's going to be fine, buddy. Like there is there is a normal to return to. I would say maybe even politically, that's what this movie is about, right? It's like, hey, look at Steve McQueen, look at the Great Escape guy, like look at our our hero, and it's like, nope, like he's actually this this deeply traumatized person who is acting out in rage and hurting the people he loves and forcing the people he loves to to compromise and debase themselves on his behalf because that's what we all have to do to each other to survive and like. If we're going to move forward, we're going to have to address the fact that that is not the world that we live in, right? This world where we can be sort of pure and we don't have to worry about or reckon with inequalities or trauma. It like it turns out that if if we're going to preserve anything, any real ideas, like I think at the end of this movie, they do, right? Like they get away literally and their relationship is preserved and it seems to be real or reified, like you said. But in order to do that, they had to come to, or specifically Steve McQueen's character had to come to this new understanding of who his wife was to him and what their relationship was like, right? She is not this sort of symbol of redemptive purity. She does not redeem him. She does not make him better. She does not 
um, save him from himself. Instead, they're sort of damned together, right? Mm. Like they're they been through a lot, but they've still got each other. But like that that does not mean that they are. He is not saved. She does not save him. He does not save her. They are just still in the world together. Okay. And that's what it means, right? And I think that, like, I think, not to bring it all back to the cuckening again, but I think that there is something sort of, like, so cruel, and I think that the cruelty is kind of the message, right, of being sort of like, hey, like, this is what it actually looks like to, like, have what you are trying to, like, get right. out of this, this right? The, this the is what it actually ideal. looks like for him to to do what he wants to be doing. It's actually like this this terrible thing, right? This ugly thing, this thing that makes yeah. a mockery of his own ideas, I guess. Yeah, I, and I think it's where where that starts to feel like friction, like 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 it doesn't fit is the fact that it is in a more conventional we've got to get away from the cops type story structure, I guess. Right. And and I think if I watch this movie again with that, I would have a much easier time parsing um like the lines there where it's like where it's trying to point me rather than just like thing happens, thing happens, thing happens. It's like thing happens and consider where in the movie it happens and consider who it's doing it and consider what happened before it. And like what the characters in that scene and around it have like experienced who they are, what we've built. I think, I mean, that's just only this basic film criticism watching, but I think it's going to take me at least another watch before I'm like there with it, so to speak. Um, but I I do, I do like, I'm, I'm seeing all the pieces in retrospect, I guess. Sure. And it, it's worth noting how that lines up with Peck and Paw's sort of philosophy on violence in mm. general in movies, right? Like, I think he said in Wild Bunch, like, he wants to make violence ugly. He wants to make people actually think about yeah. it, right? Think about the fact that, like, hey, these violent acts are, like, deeply shitty. And, like, they're not they're not heroic. They're not exciting in that way, right? Like, when when um, Steve McQueen blows away a guy with a shotgun, Peck and Paw makes sure that you know that a child watched that happen, right? Like, <laughs> like when, when Rudu shoots that dude's body and throws him out of the car and he goes flying and it's a really Pretty great good. shot, it, it's immediately followed by a family crossing the road that finds the body, right? <laughs> like two little so kids holding up. their mom's hands. But it's like, that's the point, right? It's sort of like, you don't get to have the violence without everything that the violence represents um, yeah. and everything that it is actively doing to you and to everybody else. And that absolutely, I think, from his point of view, should change our relationship with it. I I, I get it. I get it. Um, can I open the junk drawer, Cody, by asking if you know who Bo Hopkins is by name? Uh, if I know who Bo Hopkins is, I remember seeing the name Bo Hopkins in the credits, and I was looking at it, and I was like, you know what? I could maybe know any of these people, but at the same time, with names like uh, Ben Johnson. Jack Dodson, Bo Hopkins. I like feel they like could, <laughs> could just be Johnny Bo Everyman. Jones. I feel like the fact that he asked Cody specifically means that means that there's he's probably an athlete. A, oh, he, he, uh, I, tell I, me about him. I have no idea, but I just wanted to bring oh, up because oh. he he now holds the distinction of uh, being, I think, the only guy to be to have an itchy trigger finger and get fucking murked for it in two different Sam Peckinpah movies. <laughs> he was he was in this movie. He was the guy who gets itchy at the bank robbery. And shoots one of the hostages, and then is yes, as yeah. Harry just said, shot by Alatieri as Rudy and pushed out of the car. He is also in the Wild Bunch as the too young one in the very beginning, uh, who is like crazy, not Lee. really ready yet, crazy, yeah. crazy Lee. Uh, and holy I, shit, I, just, I didn't even recognize him. I, Great call. I, I, I had to call that out because that's my that's my one of my junk drawer shout outs. Is shout out to Bo Hopkins. He has quite a distinction. I don't think any well. 
for certain nobody else is going to be able. It's such a specific thing to have him do that I wonder yeah. if Peckinpah was like three years ago. He was this. Character I need that in one little twitchy son of a bitch. <laughs> He's only gotten itchier. I need that exact same plot element again. Why rewrite the playbook on this? I'm just going to give Bo a call. I love that that he brought him back for that. Um, also, I... shout outs to how despicable Bo's death is in this movie, where Rudy's just like, <laughs> grab the wheel. And he's like, oh, okay, boss. So that Rudy could just blow him away. Blows... He's just like, he's like, oh, yeah, go ahead and uh, grab the wheel for me while I'm driving. He does it. And then Rudy, without missing a beat, just shoots him like six times. Shoots him right in the dick. In the oh leg. Yeah, he's like, and he's like, ah, ah. And then he fucking kills him with the rest of his shots. It's but, but awful. Again, a quick shout out to, again, the squibs in this movie. It's despicable how much, I mean, scare quotes despicable violence all that this just looks so fucking good it reminds me of uh when we talked about ganja and hess and how in one of those introductory scenes where a character i believe kills himself on the floor of a bathroom uh and just the the blood seeping across the green tile and it just sticks out so much in this old grainy film i love how it looks in these movies um i will say also shout out to uh shooting uh Alateri as as rudy in the throat after knocking him down because he remembered that he was wearing a bulletproof vest so he knew that it wouldn't kill him so he blasts him in the throat still doesn't kill him but it was like good on you doc you, you've done this before this is not your first time you've murked a guy in a ditch somewhere um and then third and i i don't know how to make this a discussion point without being either a whole podcast the score goes fucking nuts quincy jones score for this movie there's a one piece during it's so the heist. Weird. It's it's so strange. It's like jazzy, and then it uses like um, a harmonica with the with the parchment paper over it, and it uses like you get a little bit of the like Ennio Morricone, just people sort of like saying shit in the background. Yes, it's 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 wonderful. It it is a little bit out of step with the tone of the movie, but it may but it like because of that, it allows the movie to like change on a dime. This scene is now very tense. This scene is now very playful because it's so like not what you would expect from this era or this genre of movie loved it loved it um but it's not just my junk drawer i've got all my junk in there now um uh, but i'm gonna hand it up to cody because it's it's also his sure yeah what do i got in the in the junk drawer oh wow look what we got here thoughts can i, um, can I before we do yeah, that can can, yeah. can you get can i get you get a clean uh, royal of whatever you you jiggled there was that the beans. Uh, um, this will be just for the fellas who I can see on the webcam, so you can see what it is that I'm that I'm jostling around. It's the around. bean boozling can. Oh, it's you gave it away! Big. It is it's jelly beans. Uh, so if we got a like a. Is That's that... it. That's the clean junk drawer. Okay, lead. thank you. The clean junk drawer. A uh, couple things. Uh, I guess this one's less of junk drawer and more going back to what y'all said. I I do think Ali McGraw is is fine in this. I think the I think it's a very thankless character to play, and she has like a, an immaculately steep hill to climb. Uh, but I think her line readings are fine, and I think more importantly, her because a lot of what her character does, especially in the middle stretches, is just like sitting and waiting and looking miserable. I think her actual emoting is um i think she played all that really well um so i just i wanted to get that out there uh ali mcgraw still uh still alive and kicking so ali if you're listening um hi that's i don't know <laughs> it's, I, 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 I thought you did a good job <laughs> shout out to you um <laughs> how uh, are Allie, you today <laughs> <laughs> hi how are you um right back soon sincerely try love uh and then one thing the the only other junk drawer i guess leaning thought is Early on, earlier on in the movie, I, you know, the main character's name, his, his nickname rather is Doc, but I couldn't help but think like, is that, is he called Doc? Because, you know, like, I don't know, Doc 
sounds good with McCoy or just the similar sounds. Like, is he an actual doctor? And I was like, no, he's not an actual doctor. That's stupid. Then he walks out of prison and like the bag he's carrying looked remarkably in my mind, like a doctor, like a bag that a doctor, one of those small black ones with the handles where it's not like a full briefcase, but it's like, oh, there's like a stethoscope and some gauze in Mm -hmm. there uh, and maybe like a pair of scissors. And like, that's all he needs for a little bag. Safe cracking. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, he he does take that process very seriously. He goes about it very surgically. Um, But I saw that bag and I was like, and then uh, I think it was like Benyon or somebody made, it wasn't literally like the doctor is in kind of line, but he does refer to him as doctor, which is like, that could just be some like the bullshit I do in real life where I call people by their full names, even if their name is like, like canonically even if their given name is something like joe i'll just like call them joseph to to be an asshole (laughs) like i didn't i didn't know if it was something like that we're just like oh he's calling him doctor as like a false elongated name or if he came from you know if he has a background of participating in the medical field as you know doctor surgeon um you know whatever but uh around halfway through the movie i was like you know what i'm gonna dump this thought from my brain because it's occupying too much space Final answer, Reg, he is not a doctor. And then I won a million dollars or whatever they ended up getting away with. Uh, uh, not, well, they paid the cowboy 30000 which Wikipedia did the conversion for me, is uh, $2.1 <laughs> billion in 2020. No, uh, $210,000 in The minute in I read that, I, I was like, did Cody write this Wikipedia entry? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, but yeah, sorry, those are, those are, those are my junk drawer thoughty waddies. Um, shout outs to, well, we already said it, but shout outs to the first half hour of this movie, which like maybe as like a short film, uh, would be even better than the movie itself. Um, but I kind of love it when that happens. Um, in particular at the end, there's a really great shot, um, where I think you mentioned it actually, Cody, where, uh, Doc is walking out of the prison yard. Uh, first of all, when he's doing that, every time, uh, something unlatches, like a, like a door unlatches, it cuts back to the loom mechanism that he was working on just to sort of really sell the trauma. Um, and the idea that like, Hey, are you really escaping? Um, and, uh, so that was really cool. And then like, there's just an incredible wide shot of Texas that is like standing in stark contra- contrast to the, um, smallness and the constrainedness of the prison where he walks out under the Texas and American flags and there's just like a giant field and they just like take a moment to like leave him in this, this ridiculously big space. Um, while we're talking about deeply problematic male directors, um, reminding me a lot of one of the first shots in Buffalo 66, which is also about a dude who gets out of prison. Um, unfortunately that is a really great movie that uh, is directed by a gigantic piece of shit and starring a gigantic piece of shit. The same. In fact, um, so shout outs to that really good, uh, shot. Um, yeah, shout outs to, again, like, I think you're right. I don't want to be too harsh on Allie McGraw. I think she, she does a perfectly fine job and maybe a little inexperienced, but like, also you have to remember that like fucking working with Walter Hill and Sam Peckinpah and Steve McQueen on a movie has got to be a tough sell, uh, for anyone. Um, you know, so I, uh, give her a little bit of grace for that as well. Um, Peckinpah wanted to make Emperor of the North Pole at the time he was making this movie, uh, former episode, uh, hmm. Emperor of the North Pole. So shout outs to that, I guess. Very funny. Um, I cannot imagine a Peckinpah Emperor of the North Pole. Uh, that would have been quite a brutal <laughs> movie, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, shout outs. Well done, everybody. Uh, that's the junk drawer. Uh, I'll play the sound effect on the outro here uh, just for closing it. 
10605 uh, is my timestamp if everybody wants to know. Uh, but we have another segment that closes our show um, before before our ending of it. I, I never I never get that right. Uh, we have good grief. Give me a gif. Um, so we put out this episode on Twitter and we always try to put out a gif. Uh, most of the time it's created by yours truly. I want to know what you, Harry, think should be the gif that goes out with this episode. You can have a number of selections. You can have just one or you can say the vibes. Yeah, um, I would really love the a bunch of stuff from the first uh, sequence, right? Like, if you could get something of like maybe him knocking over the chessboard and the guy saying it's just a game, and then cutting back to um, like uh, him in his cell, him looking at the pictures, just sort of any of those cross cuts from the prison, those would be really, really good. I think, um, I think that there's a shot in the hotel where um. Steve McQueen rounds a corner really quick and blasts a dude in the stomach with a shotgun. And it like cuts between him and the dude, like falling backwards after being shot several times. Um, that's really cool. Um, that's a good one. I think those are the two big ones that I thought of immediately. Beautiful choices, both uh, Cody. Yeah. Well, I guess we're, we're talking about audio cues and I don't want to make this too ambitious of a, a like landmark of an episode. And so feel free to dispense with this idea, but thinking about good griefs and like things that sort of dominate local pop culture, uh, you know, who's really famous for saying good grief is one uh, Charlie Brown, which uh, the origins for that. She's like, if you can rip, if you can rip, rip audio from Charlie Brown in, uh, like if he says it in a, like one of the holiday specials or something like that, just him saying good grief as you lead into good grief, give me, give me a, a gif. That could be something. See, maybe it's nothing. I almost think, Cody, do you host another podcast or something? Like this is, this is producer host brain is what I'm thinking. Uh, I'm going to sidestep that. My, my, my picks, uh, I'm going to say honorable mention. This is not my pick. But I, I want to, it was originally a pick. I thought for sure um, the, like, the couple of shots where um, Doc is, like, not, or just, like, the nonlinearity of, like, him jumping into the water and then Carol jumping into the water. And he's, it, like, has a couple cuts between, like, him looking at the water. So it's, like, fun matching continuity and eye lines and things like that. Um, like, it looks awesome and it's, like, kind of dreamlike and cool. But I think the 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 my two formal submissions for uh, consideration um to the academy of of uh gif picking um i realize i'm floating between gif and jif uh jif is is my preference because i like how how that sounds uh mouthfeel as j kenji lopez alt would say with regards to pronouncing words um my first pick uh them i think it's uh one hour 39 minutes 57 seconds the two of them uh doc and Carol just literally walking through garbage uh, arm in arm, I think is like a, a really lovely image. And then also I will shout out that um, I don't know how well it'll, it'll work in GIF form because it is so quick and, and slight, but 3350, the look that the two of them have with each other in the van before um, kind of the rest of the movie plays out, but the mid heist sharing like a very um, kind of like accepted, nice, nice glance between the two of them. Those are my picks. Good grief. Uh, the, the, it's only in the, um, Spanish dub, but, um, actually one of them looks at the other and says, uh, 69. And then they're both saying nice, uh, just by good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. bueno. Nice. Uh, we have one final segment of our show. Thank you both for their suggestions. Um, I'll be downloading and clipping that movie as soon as I can. Uh, in, if, if not, I'm going to just remove this whole segment. 
because you know that's did happened you, before. Did you have picks, Jason? Did you say oh, yours? Yes, I didn't. I didn't say them. I I, I just assumed you know I, I didn't want I didn't want to see more on the floor. Uh, no, come we, on. Have, we have we have more of a runway here because we're we're a panelist short. So you should uh, you should run wild, my man. Okay. Um, I do want to use uh the squirt gun. Uh, gif, either him being blasted in the back of the head with it or just in the face by that young kid on the train. I think that's very funny. Always good to take the piss out of a, you know, hotly actor uh, by just squirting him. Just give him a good old squirt. Squirt McQueen. uh, Steve is squirt. We have um, near the middle of the movie, just after like the, it's just close to the 90 minute mark, I think. Um, I forget exactly what bookends it, but they're at a, a gas station or like a diner or something. And there's a just first thing you see is this beautiful mutt looking dog on the back of a motorcycle. And that dog is just balancing. Like he's got his sea legs on the back of this guy's motorcycle. Doesn't mean anything not relevant to the plot. The character doesn't reexist, and the dog goes with him. And, but it's just such a jump. I, I was, I was starting to lose it around the 80 minute mark. And I'm like, I'm back in you son of a bitch. I'm sold. Um, those are my two picks. There are so many other great. I, I do want to pull something from the trash scene. Maybe not the long, gaping, slow mo fall from the truck, uh, but something of them looking like. I really want to capture the process of that totally segment because it echoes the intro to me with the loom. Is like the garbage truck driver is constantly pulling levers and pressing buttons that mean you're about to fucking die in the back of this truck, and then they don't. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I love that the process focus that this movie has at times that it picks up and puts down at will and i think that's a great example of it um so thank you both and thank you both for giving me a little bit of time to share mine uh we have one final segment we're starting a little bit later than we usually do but we have one final segment that i need harry to ring in with me yes thank you jason it's the segment we like to call <gasps> cody's noties wow thank you fellas that introduction cucked me to death I cannot be emphasized enough that the hmm. characters in this film, uh, they had a getaway in much the same way that many of us have our own getaways uh, in our lives. And I'd like, you know what, I'd like to explore this concept a little more uh, in in something I like to call, try love to get away for a little while. Rolls right off the tongue. Mouthfeel. I will present, what I'm going to do is uh, present some prompts relating to vacations, holidays, <clears throat> getaways. After reading each prompt, I will ask y'all in alphabetical <laughs> alphabetical by first name order, uh, so Harry than Jason, to respond. You get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in, or you can step in if you want. No need to, to do a full I'm just kind of screaming to. in on the back of a 1973 Javelin AMX is what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, it, uh yeah, that's I. You know what? Uh, we'll put in a uh, um, a video of that on our on the Trial of YouTube channel that doesn't exist of Jason doing that for real. Uh, we got to hit our Patreon goal first. None of this exists. Uh, but you know what actually exists? Getaways. Uh, we're gonna start with the extremely popular vacation destination, Disney World. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, the Disney World property in Florida covers about twenty five thousand acres and includes. I mean, a whole bunch of shit. Four theme parks, two water parks, 31 themed resort hotels, and of course, a multitude of memories just waiting to be made. In the animated canon, how tall is Goofy, Harry? Damn. Uh, that's, he's a pretty, he's again. a pretty tall guy. Uh, I, I want to say he's 6'2. We're looking at a 6'2 Goofy. He should be hooping. All right. Harry's going with 6'2. And then, Jason, what do you think? I think he's a tall 
MF. I, I'm going to say he's like seven one. I, th- I think I think I think he's really towering. All right, seven foot one inches inch locking those in. Uh, going off a few sources on the internet, in the animated canon, the animated canon, Goofy is about four feet tall, folks. What? He's about four freaking feet. I will say. I guess uh, he, he looks really tall compared to Donald Duck, his best friend. <laughs> that was right. what was getting us. Who, who, yeah, who's like eight inches tall. I, I will say it should be noted, in Disney parks, the Goofy costume, when worn, puts him apparently a little over six feet, and you need to be somewhere between, I think it was five, nine, and six foot in order to, to don the immortal Goofy costume. So that part of it checks out. Um, yeah, that, that was my knee-jerk reaction, that, too. It was like, Goofy should be hooping, but it came from the animators themselves. That's They're like, Goofy is, Goofy well, is four feet. Okay, so Max must be like, Three feet, maybe. I mean, I'm thinking of goofy Probably. movie uh, proportions right. here. Yeah, or like well, in Kingdom Hearts, it's like he towers over Donald and Sora, but maybe they're both just short kings. Yeah, right. Yeah, that very well could be. Um, yeah, and then what that presupposes is uh, Goofy and Goofy and Max and friends. You know, within the world of a Goofy movie takes place in not our own world, but you know, some fucked up alt universe where everybody is. It's a wonderful, uh, fantastical world where you can fall in love with a with a dog. Ah, oh, well, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, next, so Harry gets the point for that because uh, he was technically close, uh, nice. closest there. Um, still very much anybody's game. We're going to move on to... Uh, sorry, oh, I've been derelict sorry. my sound effects. I was a little late oh, on that one. But no, we'll no, get it. that's okay. That's okay. Uh, hey, oh, actually, ooh, uh, can we pause for a second? I just, uh, I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of beans for lunch. I don't have time to mute the microphone. I hope nothing bad happens. Oh, God. Okay, thanks, folks. Um, we can edit that out of the the episode. I'll just I'll trust It'll, you with the timestamp. It time won't be there. They won't know Jason. what you're talking about. Cool, awesome. Uh, next, a comparatively straightforward question compared to that last one: How many films are in the National Lampoon's Vacation film series? So, the National Lampoon's Vacation film series. Holy how shit. many films populate that franchise? Question mark. Uh, Harry, what do you think? Too many. Yeah, I said it. Uh, I'm going to go with three. Uh, yeah, three. Harry is going with three, and Jason is going with the following response. Hmm. I'm going to say seven, eight, seven National Lampoon movies. Jason is going with seven National Lampoon movies. Uh, I will note that at the time of this recording, the, the date and time of this recording, there are five national lampoons vacation Whoa. movies so you guys are equidistant so you both get a point uh 1983's national lampoons vacation i i need to pause for those a little bit better i'm sorry about that no, it's okay. i'm just so please i'm so excited to share the the <laughs> my love and passion and wikipedia research for these movies i i think i have actually seen i've seen most of these so 1983's national lampoons vacation uh 1985's national lampoons european vacation uh, 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, American classic, one, one, one of the greats. That one is genuinely uh, quite good. And not just because it's Christmas and we watch it at Christmas. Saw that take a lot this last year. I think that's a genuinely good yeah, comedy. Yeah, fuck those people. Yeah. yeah fuck, fuck that movie, dude. Chevy Chase is the worst. <laughs> uh, thankfully, there are other actors in that movie. Uh, it's it's uh, it's wild how that works. Uh, you know who else is in... Uh, is in you know who else is in movies? You know what other movies have a lot of people in them? 1997's Vegas Vacation, which I remember being something of a step down. And then 2015's Vacation, which I've not seen, but I'm led to believe that that is a Vacation step down is, from, is part of the yeah. National Lampoon lore, mythos? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, they, for, I didn't dig that, dig that deep into it. They removed the national, <clears throat> excuse me, the national lampoons, but, uh, or like the national lampoons, you know, whatever the, that preface, but Ed Helms is in it and he plays Russ Griswold, son of the, oh. um, the Chevy Chase character who I'm Never completely blanking out on, but, but yeah, so that's a little something, a little something for the vacation heads. Uh, and like I said, you each got a point because you were both equidistant from the actual response. Here's got two points. Jason's got one. As we move into question number three, uh, just heads up. The next few questions get into some anti-capitalistic overtones. So there's that to, to look forward to. Uh, another straightforward question, though. On average, how many days off do American employees take each year? Uh, on average, how many days off do American employees take each year? I, I got two fellas here who are... Uh, way more knowledgeable of the LinkedIn side of the world than I do. So maybe maybe they have a pretty good idea about this. But Harry, what's what are you thinking? Um, five. All right, I'm locking in. Harry believes uh, American employees take five days off each year. And well, Jason, wait, we don't count holidays, right? Those are not taking off. Th- those are correct. days that they get. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. Days that are, days that are taken off. Um, and Jason, how many days do you think people are taken off? One, I resent the implication, uh, and what it means about me that you think I know more about the LinkedIn side of the world than I, than, than you do. Um, we're all, we're I all calls them as I see them. Uh, two, I was going to guess five, so I'm going to guess seven. I mean, I'm not hopeful about that, but I think it's higher than five, but not by an appreciable. Amount. I almost guessed seven. <laughs> Uh, I love that, Jason, in your guesses, you're, so in case you, keeping track at home, dear listener, uh, Jason's guesses have been seven foot one, seven, and then seven. Uh, he's a, he's a high roller. Uh, according to Forbes, in a study they posted last March, employees take an average of 20.3 days off each year, which. God damn. There's a, there's a chance now there's a chance and I, I tried to look for specifics. I could not come up with any. They list them all so nicely, but the bad side is, is that they, I don't know. There are some details that former humble stats majors like myself would want uh, that might include sick days. I'm not positive on that, but 20 days are quote unquote taken off. And it should be noted wow. that reportedly employees with unlimited PTO only take 10 days off per year on average. So there's that. Oh, it's to almost think about. like it's a big old scam. Like it's a big old yes. fucking. Yeah, it's a mind game. It's I need to take fuck. more time off. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I plan was to say, take yeah, that one is... day off a week next year. Every are, are single you guys, week. Are you guys unlimited PTO folks as well? I, oh, I know. Yeah. I am. Yep. We okay. sure are. We call it All right. TTO, total time off. I don't know what that's. Oh, I hate to that. Yeah, and that's mm, that makes me feel uncomfy. My work but. even does a really interesting, fun thing where they um, <sighs> pretty much make you take off five days a quarter, and they're like really stringent about it. But that that also has the effect of like, if you want to take off any more time than that, like you better really have a good reason. God. And so like it ends up being so the rubber you know band I mean? snaps when yeah. you take that sixth day off it's every just, quarter. And, like anytime a company seems to be doing something that is to your benefit, it's actually to their benefit. Everybody, so like. Uh, summer hours just rolled around. Summer hours are bullshit. Uh, pizza parties are bullshit. I'm on my soapbox. It's all bullshit. Like just get paid more or work less. That's it. True. This is exactly where I thought this segment of the show would go. We (laughs) do get what you were uh, doing. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, take more time off. Uh, Fuck capitalism. Fuck corporatism. For question four, uh, checking back in on a conversation that we had a few times 
during the uh, the Eric Romare Slayer films. I'm, I'm turning my hood down for the fellows who are on webcam who can see my my awesome new hat. Um, maybe they maybe they can read it. Maybe they can't. Um, that's up for them to know and for you to find out later, dear listener. But the question is, what is the minimum number of paid vacation days that French employees? are entitled to each year thinking about how a lot of these <laughs> movies of a <laughs> how a lot of these movies gravitate toward you know hey we're on a holiday what sort of hot and fun shenanigans are we going to get into um 4d cuckery chess is something that i literally said within the last week when describing eric romero eric romero films to somebody that i had known for only 10 minutes uh so with all of that in mind uh Harry, how many, or rather, sorry, what is the minimum number of paid vacation days that French employees are entitled to each year? How many do you think? I think it's 30. All righty. I'm going to put in 30. Um, and before I reveal the answer, I will get Jason's perceived answer. Jason, what do you think? Uh, French. Seven. The, the, sorry. The, uh, the French <laughs> literally like burned down half their country for increasing the retirement age by two years or something and reducing uh, like minimum required vacation time by five days or something recently. But I wish I paid more attention to that news. Uh, Harry said 30. I'm going to say 35 days. Is it every year you said every calendar year? Right. Yep. I'm going to say 35 days. All righty. Thank you for your guesses. Um, this is going to be a big windup of an answer or a big windup. And then whatever the uh, follow through, I guess would be the antithesis. There'll be a big windup and a big follow through. So disclaimer, because there may be some variances depending on the particular op- occupation, of course. Uh, and because everything I know about this, I learned from about you know twenty minutes of internet research uh, research earlier this morning. But generally, members of the workforce in France are entitled uh, to, at minimum, uh, entitled by law to twenty five days of paid mm. vacation. That's that's the bare bare minimum. From there, thinking about uh, total paid leave because they're some other things that play into that. Uh, there's also up to 22 days of, there's a French phrase for it, but they dumbed it down for English people reading Wikipedia, reduction of working time. There's uh, yeah up to 22 days of that for employees that choose to work more than 35 hours per week, because apparently the supposed limit per week of hours worked is 39. That's really something. Uh, that is quite something. So it is so, really something. So some, if somebody works between 35 and 39 hours a week, they're entitled to use another 22 days of paid time off to yeah i mean that that's that's the shorthand i imagine it's scaled in a yeah, way yeah. that's right this um, is incredible but, I'm, I'm gonna kill myself <laughs> uh bo- bonus bonus days off are given to people who take a part of their annual leave outside summer just because again going back to the romare slate and um a lot of his filmography gravitating toward like summer holidays being a big fucking event if you do choose to take part of your annual you know collection of of pay time off outside of summer then you get bonus days so if you take three days outside that summer period you get a bonus day off six days outside that period get you two bonus days off so combining all of these rules in certain you know public offices and through certain companies uh, the resulting total might be somewhere uh like nine and a half paid vacation weeks where you get five weeks of vacation four weeks of reduced uh, reduction of time worked and then half a week of bonus days off and then on top of that Dear listener, uh, furthermore, there are 11 paid public holidays. So in total, uh, something like 36 to 48 days of total paid leave per year um, going by a, a five-day work week. And as a fun little editor's note, uh, the U.S., by comparison, has zero days of statutory minimum paid vacation or paid public holidays provided at the federal and state levels. 
So, bada bing. There, there's a there's a French line where, or there's a timeline French line. There's a timeline where French Harry has written like three books. He's competing in the Tour de France. He's married. He has three children. He loves them all very much. He's the happiest man that's ever lived. Shout out to French uh, Harry. Yeah, yeah. To Harry, exactly. <laughs> Go yeah, go watch a Summer's Tale. Go watch Pauline at the Beach. Go watch Boyfriends and Girlfriends previous episode. Um, feel better about yourselves for a little while. Harry got the point on that last question, and we are heading into the final question of the slate. Still, uh, definitely anybody's game. Uh, we're what the French call les compétents, except uh, except you. Know, hopefully, you know in this next slate, we'll see what happens. Uh, but for this fifth and final question, we will take a look at. The uh, at some some pretty popular vacation destinations in the United States, and we'll find out uh, about what those are. But what I'm going to do is list four notable travel spots in the U.S. Places that you might want to go uh, go to on your particular respective getaways. Um, what I'm going to ask each of you to do is rank them in order of most to least popular, as gauged by some TripAdvisor metrics, and that's all that I looked into those metrics. But empirical objective TripAdvisor metrics, uh, most to least popular. I will, I'll list the locations and I'll say the rest of the, the spiel for anybody listening who might be unfamiliar with that, I guess at this point. But the four locations are as follows. We have Chicago, Illinois, Las Vegas, Nevada, New Orleans, Louisiana, and San Diego, California. So again, ranking those four uh, travel destinations in the United States in order of most to least popular as gauged by the mythical, mysterious, and entirely sensible TripAdvisor metrics. You will get a point for each correctly slotted film. And again, there are going to be four cities in the in the mix that I just read off. If you get the order perfectly correct, then you'll get four points on this question. If uh, two of the cities are um, slotted in the correct places, you'll get two points and so on and so forth. And again, those cities are Chicago, Illinois, I'm just going to say the cities, uh, Chicago, Las Vegas, New Orleans, and San Diego. Those are the ones that you are ranking from most to least popular as travel spots. Have I vamped enough? Harry, do you have uh, an order in mind? Yeah, I'll try it. Um, I'm going to go with number one is Las Vegas. Um, number two, I'm going to do San Diego, which is I'm not super confident about. Uh, number three, I'm going to go with New Orleans. And number four, I'm going to go with the greatest city in the world, Chicago. You know what it is. Yeah, I know what this is. Uh, and now reading those back, we've got, just to make sure those correctly, we've got Las Vegas, San Diego, New Orleans, and Chicago. Yep. Nice. The birthplace of Sufjan Stevens and current home place of Sufjan the Cat. Um, I don't think Sufjan Stevens was actually born there. Uh, but shout out to music uh jason what's your guess very close to harry's except i've swapped my top two i'm gonna say san diego number one las vegas number two new orleans number three and chicago number four not, I, we, we got it we got a shit we got a shit on it a little bit right he's not even here he's not even know? here he's never gonna listen to this uh and in fact he's never ever ever going to listen to this uh reading those back i've got san diego las vegas New Orleans and Chicago. Chicago, Illinois, City of Broad Hearts, Big Shoulders, Broken Noses. <laughs> That's right. The the very same. Um, go Bears. Go De Bears. Um, well, thank you. I'll just get ahead of it and say thank you, gentlemen. We try love to get away for a little while. I will now read the correct order of these 
uh, glorious travel destinations from most to least popular. That order is as follows. Coming in... Uh, hacha! Uh, coming in, the list was was had more options than this, but um, this first city came in third on that list, and that city is Las Vegas. Uh, so Las Vegas mm. is number one, uh, or rather number three. Coming in hot on its heels at number four is... Nolens, New Orleans, Louisiana <laughs> uh, comes in second. The uh, coming in at number eight on this TripAdvisor metrics list is Chicago. No, it's San Diego, uh, and then Chicago came in at fifteen. Can you believe it? Sorry, yeah, it. it Chicago sucks. That's what. Uh, that's what we got. Got him. So, <laughs> so Las Vegas. No. <laughs> Do you want to just run down all of them? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. Some bitch. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so if my if my if my calculations are correct, uh, Chicago still bad. Uh, still a big stinker. Uh, but uh, the the two men participating in this game are not stinkers. They had a well-fought contest. Jason came away with three points, but Harry came away with five. He took the lead, took the dub in this particular segment, the platform, the pop-off platform, the PPP. No, the PPP? The, P- the POP. I wish it were PPP. Uh, it's just a, a POP. Uh, that is now Harry's. So Harry... PPP, have at it. You know, thanks, Cody. I think that whoever won here today, we can all agree that the real loser was Chicago, and that's all I care mm-hmm. about. So, mm-hmm. well fought match, Jason. Uh, well played game, Cody. Well constructed game, and to Chicago, <laughs> right, always at the bottom of our hearts, the bottom of my toilet, because that's a steamy turd of a city, right, fellas? Windy, not windy enough to carry away that the stink of how bad it is. Ooh! Ow, ow, ow. Thank you for shitting all over Chicago with me, Cody, uh, and for ending our episodes on always an up note, uh, even if it's a, about a really terrible place like that. Uh, thank you very much, listener, for also hating Chicago, which is a prerequisite for listening. You don't get the RSS feed if you don't. Um, but hey, if you have ever in Minneapolis, uh, a far superior place in general, you should go to the Trilon. Check out movies there and check out their schedule at Trilon.org. Talk to us about movies that are playing there that you want to talk about. Maybe you could be on the show. Hey, we don't have a high barrier to entry. Just don't be a shithead and uh, have fun in the movies. Um, check out our uh, upcoming schedule at the Trilon at the Trilon's website. We're going to adhere mostly to that. There's some cool stuff coming up. Check it out there. Talk to us. Get in touch with us at Trilove Podcast on Twitter. Get in touch with me. On Twitter, Nintendo Fist. There's one, like two thirds of a 14 ounce hams in my hand, and I uh, and the rest, it's it's making the magic you hear right in your ears right now. Um, Nintendo Fist on Twitter. Yeah, the rest of it is swishing in those Jason jowls. Um, you love to see, you love to hear it. Uh, should be noted, uh, Las Vegas was the the most highly ranked option in that that last question, um, third in that poll. Spots one and two were occupied both by Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do with that what you will. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry.
superior technology, my ass. Mm-hmm.